Chapter thirty nine of Just as I Am. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Just as I Am by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter thirty nine Drifting Apart. Life at Fairview was going on in the old, quiet way. Sir Everard had made but little change in his habits since his return from Algiers. The only difference was that he lived more alone, and spent much of the time that of old he had given to his daughter in the seclusion of his own study. Dulcie felt the change, but she offered no protest against it. She and her father seemed to have drifted imperceptibly from the old, happy, familiar companionship into reserve and strangeness. He no longer spent the idle hour or so before dinner lounging in one of Dulcie's comfortable armchairs while she played to him, and Chopin's mournful melodies seemed sadder than ever now that Dulcie sat alone at her piano. Of the gradual decay in Sir Everard's health and strength there could be no question. He had the air of a man whose days are numbered, and who knows that the number thereof is small. It might be a question of months or even years. But that idea of an indefinite lease of life which a man has while his limbs retain their vigour and his heart beats sound and strong was at an end for ever. He had been to London since his return to see the famous doctor who last December had pronounced with delicate ambiguity that oracular sentence which the patient knew to mean his death warrant, and the physician had instructed him in the art of spinning an attenuated thread to the fag end. But this process of spinning out the thread was a weary one, and Sir Everard's soul revolted against it, even although he obeyed. He was to live quietly, to court repose, perfect tranquillity of mind and body, above all other earthly blessings, since in that lay his sole chance of prolonging his life. "'I have led a secluded life the last twelve years,' said Sir Everard, with no amusements or excitements of any kind. I have lived alone with my books and my daughter." The physician looked at him with an incredulous smile, as who would say, "'Why will my patients persist in lying to me when it's so easy for me to find them out?' "'You tell me so,' he said gravely, "'and I cannot gainsay you. But your heart tells of violent agitations, of an organisation worn out by passionate emotion and mental pain. Dulcie might have drooped and died from sheer loneliness and melancholy in those days, had it not been for Lady Frances Grange and her brother. Frances, having once put her hand to the plough, was not the kind of young woman to let go until she had made her furrow. Having promised Sir Everard to be a friend and a sister to Dulcie, she was resolutely bent upon keeping her word. She came to Fairview two or three times a week, and she insisted upon Dulcie driving her ponies to Blatchmarden almost as often. Thus the two girls rarely spent the day apart, and this companionship absorbed the greater part of Dulcie's leisure, since her mornings were chiefly devoted to visiting among the poor and teaching in the school. Of late she had given herself up to this work with a perseverance and self-abnegation which she had scarcely shown in happier days, tender and affectionate as she had ever been in her care for the poor and suffering. But now that all the hope and gladness had gone from her own life, the cares and joys of others were the chief occupation of her mind. 
she shrank from all thoughts that turned inward she was glad to be busy about other people's business those long mornings at her easel or her piano which had once been so sweet to her would now have been full of pain since they would have given her leisure for thought had she been left to herself in the time of her first great sorrow she would hardly have made so noble a stand against the selfish grief which broods and despairs but she was urged to action and sustained in her course by a new friend who had a strong influence upon her mind this was mr haldimond who from the hour he first saw her face had determined to rescue her from the slough of despond into which she was falling to make life bright and pleasant to her once again not for a moment did he give her reason to suspect that he knew her story or that he was going out of his way to console her he appealed to her in the cause of others he sought to interest her in the sorrows of others he made her believe that he wanted her help among his poor and could not get on without it and she responded nobly to his call if he saw any sign of flagging any willingness to fall back upon her lonely days at fairview he was at her side to stimulate her to exertion she walked and drove many a mile in the course of her charitable visits and the pretty roan ponies were known far afield in distant cottages on the remotest edge of the sparsely populated parish sometimes she was inclined to doubt her power to do good except in the substantial form of benevolence which ministered to the bodily wants of the poor but when she hinted at her incapacity and expressed her fears to arthur haldimond he gave her such warm assurance that she was fain to believe him you think because you cannot preach and dogmatise to these poor creatures that you are doing no good he said that is a great mistake you influence them for good in a world of ways your bright face your innocence of all evil your gentleness of manner all these have a purifying elevating effect which poor people feel without being conscious of it they would not utter a coarse unholy word in your presence on any account and gradually if they see you often they will leave off coarse bad language altogether they would not like to be rough to their children before you who are so gentle and by degrees the habit of gentleness will grow upon them the education of imitation goes on all through life and what is to become of those poor creatures who never see anything beautiful or gracious that they can imitate believe me dear miss courtenay your trouble is not thrown away in several cottages where you have been i have seen a new brightness in the furniture flower-pots in the windows a nosegay on the table as if things had been smartened up to do you honour and if you leave a palpable trace of this kind be assured you leave some trace of your goodness in the hearts of those you talk with why the fact that these people love you and are anxious for your visits ought in itself to be a sufficient reward yes faltered dulcie looking ashamed of herself i am very ungrateful i do love them all poor things and it's very nice to know that they're glad to see me mr haldimond came to fairview as often as the many duties of his parish would allow him and he was one of the few people whose society sir everard enjoyed the curate was a scholar a man of wide culture and scholars were rare within a ten-mile radius of osthorpe in which rural district men gave their minds chiefly to sport and agriculture 
and thought they knew all that life could teach them when they had learned how to choose a horse and were acquainted with the elements of farriery. Mr. Haldimand was made welcome at Fairview. He dropped in whenever he liked, and it seemed to Dulcie that her father was always happier and more at his ease with her when Mr. Haldimand was present than when he and she were alone. If the curate came in at tea-time, Sir Everard would join him in the morning-room, where Mr. Haldimand unconsciously had appropriated to himself Morton's particular chair. He was a desperate tea-drinker, and had almost lived upon tea and bread-and-butter during his busy life in Whitechapel. "'My dinner was always a movable feast,' he said gaily, "'and there were days when I forgot to dine. But at whatever hour I came in, my housekeeper always brought me a pot of strong tea and a plate of substantial bread-and-butter, and you have no idea how well I throve upon that schoolgirl diet. I had no such luxuries as you give me, Miss Courtney. None of these daintinesses in the way of cake and toast. I'm afraid you and Osthorpe are spoiling me for the battle of life. You seem to work very hard at Osthorpe, said Dulcie, though you came here to rest. I could not live without work of some kind, but here I only play at working. You have no idea what work means in a London back slum, or of the despair that creeps into a man's mind when he finds himself in the middle of a world where everything is wrong, and feels his incapability of setting it right. Oh, but I dare say you did a great deal of good, said Dulcie. I did what I could. I rolled the big stone a little way up the hill. I filled a few of the bottomless buckets. I cleansed one little corner of the Orgian stables, and I dare say by this time that particular corner is just as dirty as all the rest. Yes, Miss Courtney, it is disheartening work. You who live among green fields, where something of the freshness and simplicity of nature still remains in the hearts of men, can hardly imagine the horror of London poverty. Everybody at Osthorpe liked Mr. Haldimand. His cheerful, energetic, active temperament contrasted delightfully with the languid graces of Mr. Mork, who, finding that he would not be allowed to carry out his own particular ritual in all its fullness, had contented himself with a very sleepy performance of his duties, reserving all the forces of his intellect for future exercise in a more congenial sphere. The parish had thus been in a great manner left to take care of itself, and it awakened to new life under Mr. Haldimand's vigorous administration. Dulcie was very glad that Sir Everard should make a friend of the new curate. Indeed, he of all men was the friend she would have chosen for her father, for she had a strong belief in his goodness, his wide sympathy with all human sorrow. Not once had the father and daughter talked confidentially together since their homecoming. Each seemed carefully to avoid unreserved conversation. When they talked together, it was always of indifferent matters, of art or literature or the events of the day, of their own lives, their own feelings, neither spoke. One day Sir Everard told Dulcie that he meant to take her to Egypt in the late autumn. "'My doctor says Egypt will suit me,' he said, "'and I dare say you will like to go there.' "'Oh, very much. I've always wished to see Egypt.' "'I'm glad of that. And in the meantime, now that you have an agreeable friend in Lady Frances, 
I suppose you will not mind staying at Fairview? No, papa. I am quite content to be at Fairview. This was true, for although Dulcie had felt at first that it would be intensely painful for her to be in the neighbourhood of her discarded lover, that the knowledge that he was near her, the dread of meeting him, would make life a burden, she had gradually grown accustomed to the idea that all was ended between them, and had begun to think of her engagement as a thing of the past. It seemed so long ago, since she had been utterly happy in the gladness of a girlhood that had lacked no blessing which earth can give. She thought of herself and her bygone happiness as if she had been thinking of another person. She thought of the Morton Blake whom she had known and loved, as someone who had passed from this earth altogether. Immorton Blake remained, but not the one who had loved her. She fancied she could meet him and speak to him as a stranger, almost without a pang, so completely had she resigned herself to the idea that their parting was irrevocable, that under no circumstances could they ever renew the broken tie. She met Dora Blake one day in the village and paused shyly, blushing crimson and afraid to speak. But Miss Blake took both her hands and held them lovingly, looking at her with unaltered affection. "'Why, Dulcie, were you going to pass me by?' she exclaimed. "'I didn't know what to do,' faltered Dulcie, with tears in her eyes. "'I thought you might be angry with me.' "'Angry with you? Oh, no, sweet love. Whatever might happen, I should never blame you. I know my Dulcie's lovely character too well.' I am sorry, dear, very sorry, that things should have fallen out as they have, but I cannot blame you for obeying your father. Not one harsh word about Sir Everard. Dulcie felt unspeakably grateful. Oh, dear Miss Blake, you are always good. You are able to pity and understand everyone. I hope Tiny and Horatia are not very angry with me. Oh, Tiny is apt to be a little unreasonable, said Miss Blake, and Horatia has a rather hard way of looking at things. But they were always fond of you, dear, and I think what they feel most is being deprived of your society. I should like to come and see you, love, but I feel that it's better for me to stay away. Your father might think that I was trying to bring you and Morton together again. In any case, I do not think he would care to see me at Fairview. Dulcie felt in her heart that Miss Blake was right. "'It's a sad loss for me,' she said. "'There's no one, after my father, that I love better than you. I am ever so much happier now that I know you've not turned against me.' Dulcie went home with a heart considerably lightened, and played lawn tennis with Francis Grange, Lord Beville, and Mr. Haldimand, with something of her old gaiety. The sunk lawn below the terrace at Fairview was admirably adapted for tennis, and Frances had insisted upon two afternoons a week being set apart for the game. She told Mr. Haldimand that if he chose to play he would be welcome, though he was such a tremendous swell that he made the whole contest ridiculously one-sided, and if he didn't choose to join them, they must find some obliging nonentity to make a fourth. But it happened somehow that Mr. Haldimand could always find time for a game of tennis at Fairview, and a cup of tea afterwards, sometimes in the morning-room, sometimes in a delightful little circular tent which Frances had persuaded Dulcie to set up between two great cedars on the upper lawn. 
on this particular afternoon when dulcie had been cheered by her meeting with miss blake the curate was delighted at the new brightness of her face he had been watching and waiting for the lifting of the cloud that veiled her beauty and now he fancied the shadow was passing away and that he should see her as mrs aspinall had described her to him in the radiance of her joyous girlhood she is beginning to forget morton blake he thought i wish the man were a thousand leagues away instead of being at her door beville was devoted in his attentions following dulcie like her shadow but alas for the young man's hopes she accepted his devotion as carelessly as if he had been some affectionate newfoundland or impressionable collie frisking and leaping about her she took his complimentary speeches as so many tremendous jokes laughing at them heartily and she treated him as cordially as if he had been her brother it's no use fan he told his sister despairingly when that young lady tried to inspire him by assuring him of sir everard's approval what's the good of the father being friendly to me if the daughter doesn't care a straw for me and i know she doesn't that parson fellow has as good a chance as i the words had an ominous sound to francis grange's ear what if the curate had a better chance than beville what if he were about the most dangerous rival who could have appeared upon the field he was handsome of noble presence a thorough gentleman cultured widely read travelled interesting in every way and fanny knew that he was deeply interested in dulcie he must be got out of the way somehow she said to herself or beville will not have the ghost of a chance i must warn sir everard of the danger she took an early opportunity of being alone with the baronet for a few minutes on the terrace while the others were loitering on the tennis lawn dear sir everard she began sidling up to him in her pretty coquettish way being perfectly at ease with him by this time and having a lurking idea that he liked her and thought all her ways charming i am going to take a most awful liberty i hope you won't be too dreadfully angry i don't think it is in my power to be angry with you unless you were to desert poor dulcie and turn your back upon fairview oh pas de danger said fanny with a smile and a sigh i'm too happy here oh but i have been thinking oh, please don't be cross i have been thinking that if you really would like dulcie to marry beville you are hardly wise in encouraging such an attractive person as mr haldimond to make himself at home here please don't fly out at me sir everard showed no disposition to any savage outburst nor did he seem half so much surprised and concerned as lady frances expected him to be he only looked gravely meditative and he answered her in his gentlest tone i should like dulcie to marry beville he said for i believe he is a good true-hearted young fellow and that he would make her happy i am still worldly-minded enough to wish that my daughter should be countess of blatchmardon and that her inheritance should help to restore the fortunes of a noble family but if to be your brother's wife now and a countess by and by be not her surest road to happiness i will forego my own scheme pleasant as it is to me i want her to be happy i want to see the old brightness come back to her face before i die i want to be sure that she has a faithful protector a shield and defence against all earthly troubles 
if i am not to see her happy in my way i should like to see her happy in hers and if she would rather be a country parson's wife than an embryo countess i must bow to fate you are not so indulgent about morton said frances with a touch of vexation she was so grieved on beville's account that she could not refrain from inflicting this little stab sir everard gave her a darker glance than she had ever had from him i think i told you some time ago that i had my own reasons for my conduct in that matter and that i did not care to be questioned about them he said coldly and poor frances felt that her zeal had carried her too far the fact was that sir everard was better aware than anybody else of arthur haldimond's growing influence upon his daughter's life he saw that haldimond was doing that which he the father felt himself powerless to do he was diverting dulcie's mind from her sorrow he was giving her that active share in the life and cares of others which is the best distraction for a troubled mind and if a warmer feeling should grow out of this interest if the adviser and friend should ripen into the lover sir everard was prepared to accept the result and to be thankful i only want her to be happy he said to himself i have destroyed her first hopes i have blighted her girlhood would to god that i might see her secure of a happy womanhood before i go End of chapter thirty nine